Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Colin Steele, convener of the ANU Canberra Times Meet the Authors events. Welcome to tonight's event with Andrew Lee and Brian Schmidt. First, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past, present and emerging. This is the final Meet the Author for the year, which saw 14 events cancelled because of COVID. But we're pleased that we've been able to reschedule Norman Swan with Laura Tingle and Peter Doherty with Tracy Smart in early February. I should like to thank for their support throughout the year, um, Matt Sykes and Nicole Short from Cambry and their technical team, the ANU Events Liaison Team, and Katarina Pearson and Jess Knappman from the Harry Hardhawk Bookshop. They've supported every event extremely capably, often overcoming supply difficulties, not least tonight with the book coming in from America and only arriving on Friday. Our first event for 2022 will be on February 2nd with Amy Ramikas in conversation with Catherine Murphy, and the second will be on February the 4th with Norman Swan in conversation with Laura Tingle. They should be advertised for booking in mid-January. Other authors with books lined up in February and March include Jess Hill, Gareth Evans, Alan Beam, Troy Bramston, Travis Stratton and Anita Heiss. Tonight's conversation will be recorded and available on the ANU podcast page. Usual housekeeping, if you could ensure that mobile phones are switched off, opportunity for questions at the end, and the microphone is down here if you would like to come and quote, quote for that. When you do ask your question, please try to keep it, keep it brief and end with a question mark. When I introduced Sarah Ferguson for a Meet the Author, I, got, I began by saying Sarah really needs no introduction. And the same can be said for Andrew and Brian, as they're so well known and respected in Canberra. They'll be in conversation tonight on Andrew's latest book, What's the Worst That Could Happen? Existential Risk in Extreme Politics. Incidentally, I'm sure Brian and the university would love to have Andrew's prolific publication record for its research metrics. In the book, Andrew argues that pervasive short-term thinking leaves us unprepared for long-term risks, but politicians rarely devote much attention to reducing those long-term risks. Populist movements thrive on short-termism because they focus on their followers' immediate grievances. Andrew argues that we should be long-termers, broaden our thinking and give big threats the attention and resources they need. I think the most concise description of the book comes from Andrew's Christmas letter, and he says it's, quote, like a blend of Dr. Strangelove, The Matrix and Contagion, with a riff on the risks of populism. So we look forward tonight to Andrew and Brian in conversation. Thank you, uh, Colin, and uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, it is great to be able to be back at an in-person Meet the Author event. Certainly, from my perspective, uh, one of the outstanding parts of ANU and what uh, I think ANU brings to the community are these programs, uh, because we get such a rich uh, set of authors, uh, interesting questions from the audience, and it's as good as anyone I have ever been able to be part of anywhere in the world. And so, Colin, thank you uh, for all your efforts, as uh, always. And uh, Andrew, thank you for uh, continuing to write books at a rate faster than when you were actually a professor here, uh, which is quite remarkable. Uh, your productivity is, is remarkable. Um, so uh, having read your book, um, I, I will say it's maybe not the feel-good rom-com that people are looking for uh, over the Christmas. Um, but I thought maybe I would start up just to uh, summarize it with uh, a, uh, a, a light piece of music. Uh, if you were at uh, the Chat 10 Looks 3, I, I like music interspersed in events. Uh, and, and I think you need to have this like pop up in your book because uh, of the content. 
So this is the theme song for your book, which is, if people can hear it, Dumb Ways to Die. And it's more or less what this book is about. Because almost the entire book is about ways humanity is going to kill itself uh, rather than astronomers, which is quite nice. Now, this is something that we've looked at here at ANU. Uh, in the past, uh, I did an event at the World Economic Forum in 2016, which was basically how humanity was going to kill itself. Uh, but uh, the likes of Anna Greta Hunter, John Hewson, Bob Douglas, Sharon Friel, just to name a few of our staff, created a commission for the human future a few years ago, and they really did look through uh, some of these things that you talked about. And I'm gonna be, uh, I've got a little bit of notes from them and memories from them, uh, and I'll be interested to compare and contrast. But the takeaway of your book is that politics focuses too much on the short term. So uh, you've been there for a while now, uh, taking a long-term exploration of parliament. Uh, why does politics focus too much on the short term? Oh, Brian, thank you very much for having me along tonight. Uh, can I, as Colin did, uh, acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land just before I answer your question? Uh, Dara Nuna, Dara Nanawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Nanawal Wari, Dara Wari, Dindi, Wangaralin, Jinyin. And acknowledge any Indigenous people who've joined us here tonight. Uh, thank you, too, for uh, taking some time in your extraordinarily busy schedule to, uh, to talk about my book. It's a, it's a huge honour, as, as is the attendance of so many people here tonight. Uh, the challenge with, uh, with modern politics is that uh, many of the issues that, uh, that we're concerned with are to do with the here and now. Uh, people worry about their jobs, they worry about their kids' educations, they worry about their health. Uh, and all of that is perfectly reasonable. So I'm certainly not saying that we need to devote all of our energy into thinking about long-term risks, though if you go to see the new Matrix movie just before Christmas, uh, you will of course be devoting a couple of hours of your time just to thinking about a possible way in which we might uh, uh, see the end of the human project. But a bit like we take out home insurance to protect against the small risk of a fire, I think it's worth taking out a bit of political insurance against these long-term risks. Just to take one example, uh, bioterrorism is a, a, a risk which uh, many experts have worried about, uh, yet the budget for the Biological Weapons Convention is a little bit smaller than the budget for the typical McDonald's. Wow. All right. Um just to be, I'm just curious, is, are the microphones working? Because I'm getting no sense here at all. Okay, great. Um, and it's always good to sort that out at the beginning rather than people tell you at the end, having been through a few talks where that was not true. And, um, so I want to actually, people don't think about existential risk. What do we really mean by existential risk? So by existential risk, Brian, I mean things that could end the human project or pretty much all of it. So if there's a few scattered groups of humans surviving, I'll think of that as being uh, the, the end of the human project as we currently envisage it. Possibly the closest we've come is uh, the Black Death in the thir 1300s and the way in which that cut the population of Europe uh, in, in more than half. Uh, but uh, some of the big challenges that I talk about and what's the worst that could happen are the, uh, the risk of pandemics and bioterrorism, uh, the risks of nuclear war and the nuclear winter that could follow that, uh, the danger of runaway climate change, not two degrees of warming, but six, eight, ten degrees of warming, uh, and the risk of unaligned artificial intelligence. 
that is an artificial intelligence that is many times smarter than us and doesn't have our interests at heart. Uh, and I used to think that that was something sort of off in the realm of science fiction. I no longer do. Uh, that's one in which uh, I believe uh, technology will, will ultimately advance uh, to, uh, to the point where it can outperform us. Uh, and at that point, we really want to be sure that the machine we've created uh, doesn't, for example, have as its main objective uh, producing as many paper clips as it can. Uh, if that were its main objective, then it might wipe us out, not through any malice, but just because our homes and our cars were useful sources of metal for it to build more and more paper clips. Uh, so that's one where we want to really build the guardrails before we build the highway. Um, okay, so, uh, I mean, when I reflect on existential, I, I just want to go a little bit on this, because it's one of the things that I've been thinking about, is what, what we really mean. So, as you say, the human project. So let's just, let's just think about what that means. Um, it might be, you know, we have our own little dystopic uh, Mad Max series here in, in Australia, which you can see humanity seemingly going backwards and maybe goes from whatever to probably not going to exist in any form in the future. Things seem to be heading into complete annihilation. But we could also think of it going back to, for example, the Industrial Revolution, sort of, you know, 1800s where we have, we lose most of the globalized, computer digitalized world by some sort of uh, fragmentation. We could go back to the feudal states of, you know, we lose most of that technology and we're back to bows and arrows. Or we could have a catastrophic collapse where we go into, um, you know, hunter-gatherers again uh, 10,000 years ago. So, I mean, where do you draw the line of existential? Because I actually think we're much more likely to end up in one of those intermediate states than complete annihilation. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I imagine most of us would think of 1984 and Handmaid's Tale as being uh, something that classifies as existential risk. Uh, lots of people still around, but living lives of uh, abject misery compared to the lives that we, that we live now. And certainly compared to the lives of beauty and splendor that our descendants can live if we get this right. I mean, we've talk, been talking about this from a very negative standpoint of avoiding awful things, but humanity is potentially only about 0.3% through our journey on this planet. Uh, we've got about a billion years until the sun burns out. That's 30 million generations. Uh, what we can achieve as a species in that period is extraordinarily profound. Lives of beauty, meaning, health and happiness that are, that are almost beyond imagining. Uh, so, you know, we certainly need to work out where to draw that line for what we regard as catastrophe. Uh, but anything that knocks us off the path of ever-improving human well-being and, uh, and not just sort of well-being in terms of consuming more stuff, but well-being in terms of really making a difference and, and producing a kinder, uh, more meaningful society, uh, that's, that's, uh, th that's something that we ought to be striving towards. Okay, and then one other piece of housekeeping for uh, the audience uh, who don't deal with this all this time. We do talk a lot in the book around probability. Mm. And uh, you and I work in probability a lot. Uh, I wish some of your colleagues across the lake would work in probability at all. But let's just go and talk a little bit about what we mean there in risk assessment. So, 
For example, astronomers know that the Earth gets smacked by a giant asteroid comet about every hundred million years. Um, and so, how do we compare that? And you go through a fair bit of effort to compare that to risks people are more used to. So you want to talk a little bit about that risk probability and how you think about it? Because uh, you do go a lot into it in the book, and I think it's important. Absolutely. And, and maybe that would have been the better answer to your question before about uh, politics. I think politics tends to focus on the central case uh, and often not take into account uh, what we talk about as statisticians or economists as tail risks, those things that are unlikely, but if they happened, would be really, really awful. Uh, so, uh, you know, in our case, uh, the last time a, uh, a big asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago, uh, it was really good news for us. Uh, had the dinosaurs not been wiped out when the, uh, when the asteroid hit Mexico in, uh, in uh, 65 million years ago, chances are we wouldn't be around. Uh, but that's not to say we, uh, we want the next one to hit the Earth. And so uh, the project that uh, NASA is putting in place around uh, planetary catastrophe, identifying those uh, objects, and next year conducting a, a test project to see whether it can actually uh, knock an object that's coming near the Earth uh, off its trajectory, uh, that's really important. And, and that's why uh, I'm less concerned about asteroid risk than I am, for example, about uh, artificial intelligence or, uh, or nuclear war. Uh, but all of these are, are pretty big compared to, uh, to risks that you face in your ordinary life. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're certainly bigger, for example, than the chance of uh, uh, being killed in a car crash. Uh, when we put all of the risks together, all of the, uh, uh, the, the existential threats we've talked about, uh, the best estimate I've seen is that there's about a one in six chance that humanity goes in extinct in the coming century. Uh, so that means we're effectively playing Russian roulette with the planet. And if you play Russian roulette once, you've only got a one in six chance. But of course, if that's also true of the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, then the chance of getting through to the year 3000 is only about one in six. There's then a five in six chance that eventually you have a loaded, loaded bullet in the gun. Uh, so we've got to tackle these things as a species if we want to get through the, get through the next millennium. Uh, and we should tackle them straight away because for a very small, small investment, we can radically lower uh, the, the chances of these appalling outcomes coming to bear. Right. So, for example, in your book, you say an asteroid or comet is about, in a human lifetime, it's about a one in a million chance that any human during their lifetime right now is going to get knocked off by the comet. But some of the other things you're talking around, artificial intelligence and stuff, might be uh, much higher than that, mm. like even a 10% chance, which seems a little high to me, if I'll be honest, but it's still a lot more than a million to one. And I think that's the importance of just thinking about those probabilities, because they're quite divergent. We don't normally think about it. All right, so um, let's look at some of the catastrophic risks in detail. You talk a bunch through them. Um, Pandemics seem to be a topic du jour. So, mm, do we need to worry about pandemics knocking us off? Well, the thing with pandemics is you're most worried about a disease that combines contagiousness and deadliness. Uh, so, measles is incredibly contagious, Ebola is extraordinarily deadly. Uh, what we've got with COVID is a disease which is extremely contagious, uh, but whose deadly, deadliness rate is, is somewhere in the order of uh, 0.1, 0.3% of, uh, of the world population. 
for those who catch it, maybe in the order of, uh, of, of 1%. Of 1%. Uh, but uh, the risk is something that combines those two characteristics, uh, as deadly as Ebola and as contagious as measles. Uh, and that could be either a zoonotic disease that jumps the barrier from animals to humans, uh, or else one that's created in a lab. Uh, the last person in the world to die of smallpox actually died from smallpox that got out of a lab. So, you know, that's not, uh, not, not impossible. Uh, and particularly when you consider uh, the various terrorist groups, uh, such as the Armshrenko sect, uh, which released sarin, in, uh, sarin gas into the Tokyo subway, uh, and had previously been trying to get their hands on ver various uh, uh, bad bugs which they could, re they could release into the system. Uh, there's, I mentioned before, the improving the budget of the Biological Weapons Convention. You can also have better uh, detection systems in airports, uh, better information sharing, uh, and improved uh, regulations uh, around uh, researchers doing what's called gain-of-function research, uh, which is where you try and see whether you can make an existing bug more deadly. Uh, in principle, Brian, I think we should be encouraging researchers to publish their findings all over the place. Uh, but as you would uh, appreci appreciate, there's uh, certain instances in which possibly uh, pub publish at all costs uh, has a bigger cost than we as humanity are willing, willing to bear, uh, where we should constrain researchers uh, from sharing information with those who might misuse it. So do you really think right now we have to worry around a natural occurring bug really existentially killing us off, or are you more worried about bioterrorism? I kind of look at, look at the research. The risks are, are there with both. Um, they're potentially rising with both, so the, rate, the share of zoonotic diseases seems to be higher as humans are pushing into uh, animal space. Uh, and there's also uh, an increased... Uh, desire among uh, terrorist groups to get their hands on these technologies. Uh, one of the suggestions that's been made is around uh, gene printing technology and gene, or gene ordering, uh, placing some limitations uh, on the ability of these very useful uh, desk-based de desk machines to print particularly, particularly dangerous bugs. Uh, again, a, a fairly simple fix that you could put in place, uh, but one which would be enormously helpful in, uh, in slowing, uh, slowing down the propensity of terrorists to do harm with bugs. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'll be honest. Humanity has lived for 200,000 years with bugs, and yes, the rate's higher because there's more of us. But we've gotten through that with mm. almost zero technology. So I'm not really worried about natural occurring bugs, but bioterrorism... Um, I mean, we do, we're one of the first places to be able to do CRISPR-Cas9 here several years ago. And in the next five to 10 years, there is every reason to believe you're going to be able to use literally just little mass market printers to, to do what you want. And it won't be just hijacking um, an existing disease. It will, it will be the ability, I think, to create new diseases. You know? And you'll be able to create a designer disease. And if you really want to be, you know, one of these doomsday cults, you're, you're gonna you're you're gonna release like seven or eight or twelve around the world simultaneously. And that that's what really scares me. That is my number one fear mm. of being done in personally, is a crazy person who wants to take out humanity and smart enough uh, to do it because I'm I'm that's coming.
in my opinion, in the next uh, 25 years. And I actually don't really know how to regulate it, if, if you want to know about it. Yeah, and the only kind of uh, hint of optimism I'd give to that is that there are many of these groups that have tried and failed in the past, and the, there is uh, there's a succession of attempts. You know, it's not as though Al Qaeda didn't think of doing this, but ultimately decided that they weren't able to get the technology. But as you say, the question is whether better, uh, more accessible gene technology gives an advantage to the bad guys over the uh, those those who might uh, seek to protect humanity. Yeah, well, Christopher Castine is only seven years old. It's 2014. So uh, <clears throat> we'll see. And as we start being able to get these ability to actually calculate functionality probably over the next 25, 30 years through machine learning and other technology, it, it will be really interesting. It's, to mine, it's the watch out one. Climate change is another one I worry about. So uh, it's bad. Um, it's messing up my vineyard, although this year too, too much rain. Do you really think it is potentially existential? So the guy who convinced me that we should think about climate change as potentially catastrophic was uh, the late Marty Weitzman, uh, who was a professor at Harvard while I was studying there, uh, and who made the case that uh, many of the existing models seem to quite deliberately leave out scenarios of uh, extreme warming. Uh, they tend to cap out at four degrees over the course of the, uh, the, the century. Uh, but he made the case that there is uh, you know, possibly a 10% chance you go over six degrees, maybe a 1% chance you go over 10 degrees. And going over 10 degrees is, is a real kind of all bets are off scenario uh, in which you get just massive sea, sea level rise, uh, huge problems in terms of creating crops. Uh, we know that violence increases with, uh, with temperature. Uh, some, uh, love it. One of my favourite studies looks at this, finds that uh, on hot days, uh, American baseball pitchers are more likely to throw the ball at the body of the batter. Uh, and, uh, and so a world which was, was 10 degrees hotter uh, would, uh, would potentially be a kind of catastrophe we're talking about. Uh, and if that's a 1% chance, then you know, that's a chance which is uh, uh, on par with the probability that your house burns down this year. Uh, so, uh, so it's certainly something that is big enough to, uh, to, to worry about. Uh, and indeed, Marty Weitzman argued that those tail risks uh, ought to drive us towards stronger action on climate change. He's got a lovely book with Gernot Wagner, which, uh, which makes this case very powerfully. Yeah, certainly as we get um, <clears throat> really quite extreme uh, climate changes, uh, it really probably will create a cascading effect, right? So the problem is, is the, the heat doesn't actually end up killing you. It's the violence caused by the wars, caused by the displacement, that's a big cascading thing where I would guess would probably do it before the heat does, But because people know the heat's going to eventually do them in, I would guess. Right, and we've got you know, a good case for acting, even if you thought that we were trying to uh, move us from, uh, from 2 degrees to 1.5 degrees. Uh, because we've got a set of technologies now that allow you to produce electricity at lower marginal cost if you're using renewables. So, you know, I don't think there you need a catastrophic outcome in order to spur you to action, uh, but if that's what gets you going on climate change, great. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I guess, uh, I mean, one of the things that I'm looking at now um, here in Australia is... Uh, 
whether or not we should be thinking around geoengineering. You don't talk around geoengineering, but that's a very obvious thing to do. Dangerous, I'm not, I'm not advocating it here, please don't send hate mail to me. But uh, if we start going to six degrees, you don't think we're gonna start uh, suiting, putting sulfur dioxide or big umbrellas and God only knows? Doesn't that, don't you think there will be all these interesting interactions that happen before we get there? Absolutely, uh, you know, I think the risk with geo geoengineering is that it's so cheap that you might have the opposite of a free rider problem. You might have countries choosing to go it alone with unproven technologies. So getting more research around geoengineering I think is really important. Um, Harvard's just launched a project around geoengineering which importantly is, isn't just the engineering side but also builds in a lot of discussion around the ethics and the economics which, uh, which is, is really fundamental. Uh, and uh, you know, we know that there's big limitations to these, uh, the, these approaches. Um, some of them are able to bring down air temperatures but not water temperatures, so you still get the same catastrophic damage to the barrier reef. Um, so there's no sense in which they're a, uh, a magic bullet, but getting good research around them I think is, is really, really vital, uh, lest, lest countries say, well, we're just going to go out there and do it, uh, and the rest of the world's underprepared. Yeah, and, I, and people may not realize this, but literally with a, uh, a uh, well, like a howitzer, you can put sulfur dioxide up into the stratosphere, and a small nation state could cool the planet uh, quite, you know, quite easily on its own. It's pretty remarkable how sensitive our atmosphere is. It's very uh, easy to forget, and it's easy to forget that, you know, there's a huge drive from the bushfires from two years ago that has probably contributed to the quite cool summers we've had for the last two years. It's hard to know exactly, but uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a big system uh, that is surprisingly hard to predict, and it's because it's a, what we would call as a physicist a non-linear system. Uh, it doesn't, if you do a little bit of X, a little bit of Y doesn't just happen. Sometimes a whole bunch of things happen that can be much, much bigger than you would ever imagine from the little, the little bump you give it. Mm. So it's a dangerous, dangerous playing uh, our, our Earth is when we start playing around with it. Absolutely, and that's before you get to the, the policy feedback loops, the risk that uh, uh, countries say, well, we're going to continue down our path of, uh, of dirty growth because it's possible to have, to have this geoengineering solution. So you know, I think that's why it's the, the, the research, thoughtful research is, uh, is really vital. Good. So the first area of existential risk back in... 1955 at Lindau, the Nobel Prize winners talked around the existential threat of nuclear war. So uh, that was a big thing from the 50s until the fall of the, the wall and sort of that risk has gone off uh, everyone's radar except for Gareth Evans, the former chancellor who was still very much uh, focused on it for good reason. So what do you see the risk there uh, and how do, we, how do we reduce it? I remember as a kid in the 1980s, really vividly having a conversation with uh, one of my classmates in grade five in which we both agreed that we wouldn't grow up to be adults because there would be a nuclear holocaust at some stage. Uh, I just remember it, it being such a, a palpable risk at the, at the time and that sense that, uh, that the uh, weapons kept on hair trigger couldn't be sustained. Uh, and we've still got 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, we've got the potential that we're going to see new, new nuclear states. Uh, and we have some countries which are 
refusing to commit to a no first use doctrine. So reduce the number, reduce the stockpiles. Uh, let's see fewer nuclear weapon states if we can, if we can find incentives for countries to denuclearize. Uh, 30 years ago, we had the only exa real example of this. Uh, South Africa, under the late F.W. de Klerk, voluntarily uh, renounced its nu nuclear weapons and signed the, signed the NPT. Um, some of the Soviet uh, states uh, also handed their weapons back to Russia, but I don't really count that one. Uh, so getting, uh, getting fewer nuclear states is really important. Uh, and then getting these darn things off hair trigger alert. Uh, we can also you know, having, have better uh, restrictions around their use. Uh, apparently there was a, uh, an incident uh, a couple of decades ago where the United States decided to put uh, locks onto each of its nuclear weapons uh, with a central code. Uh, but then this had been one of those orders that came down from the White House and the uh, military commanders were concerned that the locks might impede their ability to fire the weapons uh, in the event of a crisis. And so all of the locks were set to the number 00000000. 000 000 000. Uh, about as useful as the, uh, the combination locks and uh, those, old, those old suitcases. Um, they should also be able to be destroyed in the air. Uh, and, uh, and most nu nuclear weapons at the moment um, can't, be de can't be destroyed in the air, again, because military commanders have taken the decision uh, that uh, something like that could be hacked uh, and uh, used to, uh, to, to stop, a, stop a strike. Uh, I think the risk of an accidental nuke uh, going off is, is bigger than the chance that an adversary would hack your system and uh, destroy all of your we weapons midway. Obviously, uh, you're not running a Java server right now. Um, the, uh, I mean, I, I guess one of the interesting features of the nuclear risk, as I'm looking at, is we're getting a slow proliferation. And so you will hear uh, everyone talking about small modular reactors. Australia is, of course, looking at having small uh, modular reactors in submarines. And each one of those small modular reactors is going to have enough plutonium towards the end of its life to create uh, a nuclear bomb. And the access to pl plutonium and U-235 are really the, the, the thing that keeps places from developing nuclear bombs. I'm sorry to say that they're actually pretty easy to, to make these days um, if you have plutonium. Indeed, uh, probably if you gave me the amount of plutonium, we could have one this afternoon or by tomorrow afternoon if you want. So it is, uh, there's a reason why North Korea was able to actually do it perhaps um, faster than you might think. I think the interesting thing about North Korea is they seemingly also managed to make a hydrogen bomb which I think most people would say is quite a bit harder. Um, at least I always assumed it would be harder, but uh, uh, obviously not as hard as I thought. Um, so that, so how does this feed in? I mean, small media, uh, modular reactors may be a really valuable thing as sort of the last couple percent of stabilizing the grid. Um, does Australia have appetite? Since we've got most of the uranium stores in the world, we are the most politically stable, geologically stable in, uh, country in the world. Do we have the appetite to sort of send and receive and charge for the pro uh, for the privilege of doing so? Or you like? I, mean, I, I realize that. Don't give an answer. Uh, uh, but what do you think about? Should we be at least thinking about those types of things? 
Well, we also get uh, more solar energy hitting, hitting the uh, continent than any other continent on Earth. Uh, we've got uh, enough wind power that offshore wind could uh, power us and the entire region if we harnessed it. So I think given the, the access to those sources of renewables that don't come with the uh, uh, catastrophic dangers that nuclear weapons or nuclear power comes with, um, that it's, it's something that we can safely uh, leave on the, uh, on the back burner. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly aware that, uh, that we need to be very cautious around the proliferation of materials. Uh, the AQ Kim network that was run out of, out of Pakistan uh, certainly created huge risks. Possibly the riskiest thing that Donald Trump did during his presidency uh, was, uh, was ripping up the Iran nuclear deal and accelerating the, the probability that there will be one more nuclear power in the world. Uh, indeed, indeed. And I mean, I guess, uh, and again, uh, as a member of the political class, uh, I don't want you to answer this, uh, but uh, I will just say that it's all well and good for us not to say we're going to take nuclear power off the back burner. My worry is when others don't, and we may be the best solution as the compromise. So uh, it's something to think about. Now, you say the most dangerous risk uh, is artificial intelligence gone bad. Um, why have you become so concerned around artificial intelligence? You're an uh, avid Go player and you realize that you just, there's so much better than humans that it's hopeless. So tell me what, what switched in your mind going from, yeah, maybe this is Terminator as opposed to this is something I'm really worried about. So there's two things you want to think about with artificial intelligence. First of all, uh, when do we produce a computer that is smarter than humans? What do I mean by smarter? Well, there's various tests. You could think about a Turing test. You could think about whether it can go into uh, to your workplace and perform your job as well as you do. Uh, you Remind people what a Turing test is. Turing test is the ability to uh, fool humans uh, in, a, uh, in an online chat uh, that, uh, that, you are, that the machine is in fact a human. Uh, at some stage, either through uh, simulating brains, whole brain emulation, uh, or else through building up uh, from, uh, from uh, you know, first, first principles, uh, I think most artificial intelligence researchers imagine that they will produce a computer which outperforms humans. Uh, there's differences on forecasts of that. You know, some say it'll be 30 years, some say it'll be 100 years, but Virtually no, no one working seriously in this field say, says we, can't, we won't ever solve this problem. Uh, it is anticipated that this problem will be solved and ultimately will produce a, a computer that is smarter than humans. What happens then when it goes past us is it accelerates way past us. So if you take the example of uh, chess, Magnus Carlsen just won the uh, uh, Grandmaster uh, or the, the world, world Championship among humans. If you put Magnus Carlsen up against the best computer, the computer beats Magnus 99.3% of the time. Uh, so once they pass us, they very quickly blitz past us and get to a stage where their intelligence to us is like our intelligence to our pets or to insects. Uh, then the, so, so that's the question of when do, human, when do computers pass humans? Then there's the question is, uh, are their interests aligned with ours? And I think there's reason to think that if we don't place a lot of emphasis on this problem, uh, we won't end up with a computer, we won't necessarily end up with a computer uh, who desires the same things as us. 
Uh, if you build a computer, for example, to maximize human happiness, um, then it could well link us up to matrix-style machines in which uh, beautiful drugs are, uh, are poured into us and we're fed a, a stream of, uh, of, of ha happy, happy thoughts. But most of us, while that might maximize pleasure, wouldn't think about that as maximizing the well-being of the species. Uh, so we do need to, uh, uh, to ensure that, the, uh, that computers have values which are aligned with, the, with those that most of us in the room would, uh, would pursue, or maybe even better than that. So think about you know, the ideal computer that a group of people would have built in the 1950s. They would have locked into that computer the values of the age, which if it was a bunch of uh, blokes like Aaron, uh, uh, Alan Turing sitting around working on it, uh, then they might have been a little more sexist, a little, more, a little less uh, racially tolerant, uh, probably not alive to issues around trans transgender rights and so on. Uh, so ideally, you would like to think about an artificial intelligence that doesn't just embody our values, but embodies the kinds of values we might aspire to have in the future. And that's tricky. Uh, indeed, and I would guess uh, opens itself up uh, in the transition period, whether just at us of being manipulated by people with evil intent. Mm. I guess what I worry about is something, I mean, so you're not actually talking around machines having consciousness, but rather just the super ability, multifaceted super ability is, is well, as, uh, as, as, as we know, big debates around what constitutes consciousness, but uh, to the extent that computers would do everything we could do, uh, you'd, you'd probably regard them as, as having a consciousness. Okay, interesting. I mean, I see the, the worry maybe even sooner than this, much less sophisticated. Imagine you are a military power and you build a robot that has a nuclear power plant, so it lasts for 30, 50 years, and it's targeted to identify humans and kill them, period. Um, and it can go for 30 years, and we already have the technology to do this. That is already probably capable if someone made, you know, several thousand of them, which is completely capable to extinguishing ourselves already. So we can already do it with machines. They don't even have to be very smart. They only do one thing. Their job is to kill humans. So again, I do worry about the, one of the things running a large organization is you realize that uh, humans are a very diverse species. And uh, when you have 25,000 people, you get a few people who are, you know, I, I'm not convinced are not prepared to do something absolutely awful. And when you have 8 billion, then even more so. So, yeah, no, that's a really uh, astute point there, Brian, that uh, you want to think not about how the typical person would manage these technologies, uh, but how the atypical person would manage them uh, and being alive to that risk and thinking about, uh, I suppose, where your question goes to is the interaction between these catastrophic risks. So we've talked about them sort of in silos, but what if you uh, put your artificial intelligence in charge of trying to figure out how you can get an edge over your adversary using your nuclear weapons. Uh, what happens if you put your artificial intelligence in charge of uh, devising the next uh, bioweapon? Uh, the, these, uh, these, these, these risks cross-cut one another, uh, but thankfully many of them can be reduced uh, through the same, the same sorts of uh, principles. 
So um, Donald Rumsfeld famously told us about unknown unknowns, and I always worry about unknown unknowns, although not really because there's not much you can do about them. Can we do anything about unknown unknowns? Well, they're there in the table because uh, you, you want to bear in mind that uh, almost all of the risks that I've talked about are risks which would not have been uh, raised by H.G. Wells when he was writing about existential risk a century ago. Uh, he would not have uh, been thinking about climate change at that point. Nuclear we weapons didn't, didn't exist. Uh, perhaps he would have envisaged runaway artificial intelligence, though given the state of computers at the time, uh, who's to know? Uh, you would have been aware of pandemic risk, given the uh, the, the black uh, black death, but uh, but that's about all. Um, so the notion that we've covered the field in terms of uh, existential risk is uh, is probably a bit too a bit too bold. Uh, there must be things out there that we haven't yet envisaged, and so they're uh, wrapped into this one in one in six uh, uh, number that uh, that sort of comes at the core of the book. Right, and that one in six is anthropogenic. Anthropogenic, so human basically doing ourselves in and the, the all the stuff i worry about which is you know super volcanoes gamma ray bursts flares they don't add up to anything is that right pretty much yeah i mean super volcanoes i'm more worried about than uh, than asteroids uh, you know, when they uh, when they go up, they really uh, really go up, and it seems like our technology for detecting supervolcanoes is well is significantly inferior than our technology for detecting asteroids. Uh, though you'd uh, you'd be, you'd know more about that than me. Uh, uh, indeed. Well, I think we could probably detect a supervolcano. I don't know what we do about it, but my sense is, I reckon we could. It would mess the world up. I'd rather try to deal with the supervolcano than a. Uh, an asteroid, but I think it's it's at least a hundred times more likely to have a new uh, Yellowstone type event mm. happen, right? Mm. So, yeah. Okay, so let's get into uh, one of the I think really interesting parts of the book, especially as a sitting politician. Uh, your book makes uh, a strong point that populists are making existential risk worse, more dangerous. So, uh, why do you think populists have become so popular? Uh, over the last uh, 10 or 20 years? Snobs, jobs, race, pace, and luck. Let me go through those five. Uh, there's uh, there's a, a, a sense of uh, snobbery among the leaders that preceded many of the populists. Uh, those who, for example, the, uh, the Republican establishment had this idea that uh, Donald Trump could just be safely ignored. Uh, and not just Donald Trump, but his supporters. Uh, so a sense of snobbery among the establishment blinded them to the rise of populism. Uh, jobs, well, the, the failure of uh, many advanced economies to generate enough well-paying middle-class jobs uh, as manufacturing jobs have dwindled has created fertile ground for populists. Uh, race, most advanced countries have become more ethnically diverse and race has been weaponized by populists in order to uh, build a, a political constituency. Uh, pace, there's a lot of social change going on uh, and a lot of technological change at the same time, which has led many people to say, stop the world, I'd like to get off, uh, and to be superficially drawn to those who can promise to take the world back to the 1950s. And then just pure luck. Uh, they've, uh, they've, Pat Buchanan and uh, Donald Trump don't differ terribly much in terms of their uh, political ideology, uh, but it was in some sense just chance that Trump came along 
uh, with better political skills uh, than uh, Pat Buchanan had exhibited uh, and found himself facing off against the perfect candidate for his style of politics, uh, somebody who had been steeped in public policy uh, all of her life and therefore could be mischaracterised as being an establishment insider. And uh, so, okay, so uh, populists are here, uh, certainly more so than they have been for a long time. Why do they make catastrophe more likely? By design, populists uh, want to turn up the temperature, they want to attack institutions, and they want to undermine internationalism. And they're the very things that we need in order to deal with catastrophic risk. Uh, we need a calm, considered conversation, like we're having tonight, uh, about the fact that while these things aren't likely, uh, they are possible, and we need to reduce the risk. Uh, we need good institutions, whether that's the Biological Weapons Convention, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, the IPCC's careful work on climate change. Uh, and we need uh, international cooperation, because so many of these risks cross borders. Uh, and indeed, the uh, uh, work that was done on artificial intelligence risk by Emmanuel Macron and Justin Trudeau in 2018 uh, was derailed by the Trump White House uh, that said that they didn't want an international treaty which looked at ethical artificial intelligence. And again, just made it that little bit harder, Brian, to uh, uh, have a good converse conversation internationally uh, about dialing down the risks. Okay, so if you were in charge, what would you get Australia to do about it? We've uh, got a good record in a range of these issues. You know, Australia has, uh, has been... Uh, at the forefront of uh, working through the Canberra Commission on Nuclear Weapons to, wor to work for a nuclear-free world. And I think there's more we could do globally to be stepping up on the issue of nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, I'm the member for Fenner, named after Frank Fenner, of course, not just an ANU professor, but also somebody who declared the end of smallpox to the World Health Assembly. Uh, so, uh, an Australian researcher uh, here at ANU uh, working on uh, dealing with, uh, with uh, the, uh, one, of the, one of the big disease risks. So, there's, there's a lot that, uh, that uh, Australia can do there. And maybe on artificial intelligence, it is our comparative advantage, uh, given that we're very strong in philosophy. Of course, ANU is uh, one, uh, the best philosophy university in Australia, but also, as people probably know, one of the best philosophy universities in the world. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of the work by uh, Seth Lazar and others has, uh, has, has great potential to form the basis of international co concordance uh, around reducing artificial intelligence risk. And getting all the great benefits that come from artificial intelligence. You know, the last thing we want to do is, is stop the advance of technology there because what it could do for our well-being, if we get it right, is, is magnificent. So we're going to, uh, I want people to start getting ready to come up and uh, do their questions. Uh, so as an astronomer, I always like to think big. And a couple decades ago, some of my colleagues came out with the idea as well, if you just think that we're a random human in history, then you know it's as likely that we're in the five percentile of all humans as the 95th percentile of all humans. And we've lasted 200,000 years. And so from that, bizarre piece of logic, uh, you can kind of put an estimation of that the lifetime of humanity is going to be for another 5,000 years at least, 
to about 8 billion years. But one of the fallacies that I think that's based on is the idea that actually humans back then are the same as now, when the whole premise of this book is that the risk from an external thing of being extinguished as a species is actually quite small, and the risk as we evolve of extinguishing ourselves seems very, very high. So it's interesting to see that argument, I think, going the way of the dodo, uh, just because we, we, we do change over time. But what I do know is, as you mentioned, about a billion years from now, the sun uh, will heat up the Earth hot enough so it will become very unpleasant um, because the nuclear reactor in the sun heats up. Uh, and probably uh, that will be the end of time, but five billion years from now, we will be completely incinerated by the sun as it puffs up to a red giant. And if we do manage to jump planets, uh, maybe that would be great, but what we know from the so-called Fermi paradox is that if we can jump to one planet, we can jump to any planet uh, in the galaxy within less than a billion years. And unless you think we're being visited by aliens all the time, that means we would be the first group in the history of the Milky Way, which has got about a trillion planets on it, to pull that off. So maybe I'm not very optimistic about the long, long term. So that is the existential risk that I think will come home to roost eventually. I I'm, I'm open to being persuaded, Brian, that we can't make the jump to another planet, but then you just want to look at what we can achieve on this planet. So uh, if it is true that we've only got a billion years, that means we're 0.3% through the journey. Uh, so if this were to be uh, an 80-year 80 80 year lifespan that, uh, we, that humanity had, uh, then we'd just be a newborn in our, in our first few months of life. Uh, the potential for humanity's time on, on this planet is, uh, is vast. Uh, and just as the lives we live are unimaginably uh, longer and more pleasurable uh, than the lives that uh, uh, our ancestors lived uh, 20,000 years ago, uh, so too the lives of our descendants will potentially uh, be much more, much more beautiful and meaningful than the lives that we currently live. Uh, and uh, I think we should place the same value on those lives uh, as we place on our own lives or the li lives of our children. I don't think we should apply an economic discount rate to the well-being of future, future generations uh, in the way in which we discount uh, future, future money. Uh, and that means that uh, if the, the rest of, uh, if those generations could see us now, they would regard us a little bit like we would regard a kid sitting in a parked car on the top of a cliff playing with the handbrake. Uh, they'd, uh, they, they, they'd be screaming at us to get this one in six risk way down uh, because we can do so at a cheap cost and it will ensure that they get to exist at all. All right, that's a good place to uh, take questions. So uh, you need to, so I'd like you, if you want to ask a question, I want you to come up and use the microphone so we can all hear you. Uh, thank you. We hear a lot today about tipping points, tipping points in the atmosphere and heaven knows what. But I suspect we've already passed a fairly dramatic tipping point in the population of the world. Um, I think we're pushing 8 million and eventually hope to get to 11 million. Um, well, that's anticipated. I've read recently that the carrying capacity of the world, if we all live like 
Americans or Australians is one and a half billion. Now, in my lifetime, I've seen the disappearance of the rhinoceros and almost, I don't know, uncountable species. I think that if everybody wants, 11 billion people want to live like us, it's going to end up with a pretty messy future. Uh, and it'll be people, as uh, Professor Smith says, fighting each other for very limited resources. Do you have any ideas on that? Here, people sort of telling you, have one for the country, one for the wife, and one for the family, and a couple more for the whoever you want to. So the population bomb that yeah. my parents had wrote about, read, read, I guess, back when I was born. No, thank you. And so uh, it's a great question because I uh, don't regard population, uh, growing population as being an existential risk and, and it is uh, one that sometimes gets raised, including uh, by some of the researchers around the Commission for, for the Human Future. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with them over the, uh, the question as to whether uh, so-called overpopulation should be regarded as a catastrophic risk. Uh, when I look at uh, demographics, though, across uh, a whole range of countries, uh, many countries have passed the point at which they're uh, having uh, they're increasing their population. So birth rates in Australia are obviously below replacement rate of uh, 2.1 uh, births per woman, uh, but that's also true in uh, in China. Uh, you've seen a significant uh, fall in fertility rates uh, in uh, across Asia. Most countries in Asia are, are below replacement rates. Uh, and now many countries in Africa are coming down to, uh, to the replacement rate level, uh, and some are indeed below that 2.1. Uh, so we're going to see an increase in population, but the uh, World, Ma uh, World Bank projections of going to 11 billion then have the world population decreasing on the other side. I think there's a huge issue of resource allocation. There's obviously uh, a lot of people in the world who, ha who are consuming too many calories and a lot of people who are consuming too few calories. Uh, and making sure that we get a fairer allocation of resources uh, is really critical. Uh, but the advances through the Green Revolution uh, have ensured that we have the technology to feed, the, f feed 8 billion now, 11 billion in the future. We just need to make sure that we have the institutions that ensure that those people uh, get to live meaningful lives. Uh, if we press the pause button on population, it wouldn't solve climate change on, on itself. Uh, so we need a solution to climate change that involves decreasing uh, overall emissions uh, per, per person, uh, not simply trying to tackle climate change by decreasing the number of people. I'll just say you're lucky you're not a rhinoceros. <laughs> well, uh, you, you are lucky you're not a rhinoceros. Uh, well, I, I agree, but I, mean, I think the, the point is, is important there as well. Uh, I would like to see us be able to do much more on addressing threatened species. Uh, I, I'm confident that we can, ha if, we, if we put our minds to it, uh, we can do much more on threatened species than we would be able to simply by pausing the number of people on the planet. Well, certainly pausing people on planet is uh, a, a big challenge, but making people rich seems to be a really good way to uh, pause uh, growth. And I'm always uh, thinking one of the existential risks that humanity might have long term is if we get too rich, our fertility will go very low, 
and uh, we'll evaporate as a species over a thousand generations. But I think that's probably not yet a problem uh, to, to worry about. All right, uh, Andrew. Is that the final question there? Oh, I'm sorry, I, I missed you in the dark. You get the final question. Thank you. Uh, Ramton Sapaspal, I'm with the Commission for the Human Future and a researcher with the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. Um, I wanna, I'm wondering if you've spoken with your colleagues uh, about this topic, what their reaction was, if any, and if it wasn't a positive reaction um, in terms of driving change, what do you think will change their mind? So when you say colleagues, do you mean uh, the economists at ANU or do you mean uh, parliamentarians? <laughs> the parliamentarians. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ranjan, thank you very much for the question, and thanks for the work that the Commission on the Human Future has done on this. There's, uh, you've brought together a range of really thoughtful people across disciplines to talk about the topic, and I, I've learned a lot from that conversation. Uh, with my, uh, my parliamentary colleagues, um, I've had this conversation in pieces, but not as a whole. Uh, many, as, uh, many of us have been concerned about the rise of populists, whether that's uh, the... Uh, uh, One Nation, uh, One Nation, or uh, UAP. Uh, many of us have been troubled by issues around climate change and nuclear war. Uh, obviously, the uh, the issue of COVID has been the number one issue in politics, uh, and that's spurred people to think about you know whether we might have an Australian Centre for Disease Control, where every other advanced country uh, has one, we don't, uh, and that could potentially help us to uh, stem the, uh, the to, to curb the risk of uh, pandemics and bioterrorism in the future. Uh, Gareth Evans, as, uh, as, as Brian has said, is uh, frequently in the ear of many of us in Labor uh, about what we can do on nuclear non-proliferation. Non uh, and I know that's, uh, that's been an, an important issue for, uh, for, for Anthony. He's uh, somebody who's uh, worked, worked a lot on, uh, on nuclear, nuclear risk. And you know, maybe that comes from being uh, about the same generation as me, where it was just such a present issue growing up. Uh, and we're aware that the uh, the, the danger still uh, still lurks out there. Uh, so you know, those th I've had those conversations in pieces, uh, but I'm looking forward to having the the kind of joined up conversation about what's the worst that could happen uh, with more of my colleagues uh, over coming months. Do, do we need like a existential risk commission that is? long-term thinking 10, 20 years. I mean, with all due respect to you and your colleagues, uh, the three-year election cycle seems to me that unless you have something independent that can carry the torch, it's just gonna, it's not gonna, it, it, the commission is doomed to its own existential risk of just falling out of, <laughs> out of fashion. Yeah, I, I'm in favor of four-year terms. Uh, we did take it to a referendum in 1988, and uh, it's, uh, it's been in our policy platform ever since. Uh, but I think this is uh, probably something that, uh, that uh, one of the uh, flagship Australian universities could take up. Uh, there's uh, useful centres uh, uh, at Cambridge and Oxford which have done a lot, done a lot of work in this area uh, and uh, a number of centres in the United States largely not associated with universities. Uh, and it's a, it's a classic issue for universities to work on because uh, you have so many terrific researchers uh, probably no, no, nowhere else than ANU has as many people working on the different pieces of the existential risk puzzle. Uh, and I've got to say, Brian, the reason that uh, I asked you if you could uh, do this conversation this evening is that I'm not sure there's anyone else in Australia who better understands the pieces of the existential risk question than you. So thank you for taking the time to have this Flattery conversation Flattery will get tonight. you everywhere, Andrew. <laughs>
All right, on, on that piece of uh, self-aggrandization, I'll uh, wrap things up and say that uh, if you know any uh, billionaire who would like to fund the Center for Existential <laughs> Risk, uh, the one in Cambridge is funded by a billionaire and is run by an ANU grad. So uh, always feel free to reach out to your friends. Andrew, thank you for a very provocative uh, evening. Uh, I want everyone to sleep well tonight. You will hear a real positive, we can be great. We just actually have to make our own uh, greatness in the future. I think that came through. Uh, really appreciate that. Let's all give uh, Andrew a round of applause. Thank you, everyone, and enjoy the holiday break. <laughs>